We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, Acts chapter 20. After the uproar had ceased, that was speaking in Acts 19 about the whole thing with uh, the crowd in Ephesus, the riot actually, and everybody there, to me, humorously crying out for two hours, great as Diana of the Ephesians. You'd think they'd figure that out before two hours was up if they really thought it was true uh, and you know be able to control themselves, but they didn't. And so... That riot uh, calmed down. So after the uproar ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. This change of travel plans kind of messed things up a little bit for him, Uh, but it's certainly understandable, isn't it? If there's a threat on your life, you're probably going to usually go a different direction. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia, also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days joined them at Troas where we stayed seven days. Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a young, certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But when Paul went down and fell on him, And embracing him said, Do not trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. Now when he had come up and broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daybreak he departed. And they brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. Greatly comforted, I would say. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day, we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God, 
and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There, my friends, is the core of the gospel. Paul testifying to Jews and Greeks, all humanity, one repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So repentance has to do with sin, of changing your mind about your sinfulness and about your relationship to God and faith, trusting in Christ who died for your sins and rose again. That is the core. If you don't remember anything else, somebody asks you, what is the gospel? You just say, repent toward God and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that'll trigger your memory to be able to say a few more words about the, the good news and you share that with your acquaintances. Verse 22, And see now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy, and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood." For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Boy, we could spend so much time in each of these verses. The church of God, which he, that is Jesus, purchased with his own blood. It's at the cost of the blood of Christ that you have the opportunity to be saved and the actuality of it if you are born again. Also, he says, there's going to be these problems rising up and uh, people trying to take sheep from the flock. That is so true, my friends, today, online, in books, popular media, movies, radio programs, blogs, podcasts, evil philosophies being taught, drawing people away from God and toward the devil. Savage wolves will come in among you, he says, verse 29, not sparing the flock, Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brothers, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way, by laboring like this, that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Well, some meals uh, of food from God's Word are more like, or some food maybe I should say, using the uh, analogy of that song, are more like appetizers, and some more like dessert, 
and some like tasty steak, and others are your broccoli and carrots. You got to have them, but no, you don't like to have anything green on your plate or orange, huh? Sweet potatoes, squash, okra, you know, all that good stuff. Wait a minute. That doesn't fit. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 38, please, this morning. Genesis 38. And uh, the way I wanted to uh, attack this chapter as far as studying it together with you, and I'm, I don't plan to spend the whole time this morning on it, um, was to really answer the question, why is chapter 38 here? And you don't, you don't see necessarily the reason for it if you just limit yourself to chapter 38. You have to look at it in the context. And let me uh, just highlight that for you. If you look at chapter 37, verse number 36, the last verse of the prior chapter, it says, Now the Midianites had sold him, that is Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Now look at 39.1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. One of the big values of chapter 38 is that it sits between those two kind of repetitive verses, and it's going to compare by by just plopping it down into chapter 38 here. It's going to allow us to compare the character and uh, life of Judah versus that of Joseph. And we're going to see a great contrast. So I'm not going to exegete the whole chapter or give the details of it. It's, uh, I say in my notes, it's a little too immoral to delve into the details in mixed company. But I will point out a few things. Now, Judah, um, it tells us here uh, that he married and had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah, or Shelah. And uh, fast forwards quite quickly here because it tells us that Ur was wicked. And uh, that's in verse number uh, six. Uh, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. Well, that's pretty stark, isn't it? The Lord killed him. He was wicked, and the Lord killed him. Now, the Lord doesn't always do that. Uh, in the sense of giving a premature, uh, untimely end to somebody who's wicked. Sometimes wicked people live on a long time. But in this case, the scripture attributes his death to the Lord. It was uh, untimely. Uh, He had not lived out to the fullness of the length of his life. And so uh, we're left with that just as a statement of fact. Uh, The same God that did that is the same God that we believe in and worship, and he will do that today if he sees fit. This necessitated the next brother, Onan, Judah's son, second one, to marry the widow of his deceased brother. And then it says to raise up an heir to your brother. This was a cultural duty that later became encoded in the Mosaic law. We call it the law of leveret marriage. It's dealt with in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. And the idea was that a woman who was married to a brother who died untimely would then marry another brother in the family 
and that brother and her would have a child, and that child would succeed in the name of the dead brother so that his inheritance and land and possessions would not be passed out of his, out of his name. So it, it was kind of like, a, uh, almost like a reverse adoption, if you will. They had a, a, or a surrogate child. They had a child in the name of this brother. And um, so we, we saw that exampled, not, a, not exactly exampled, but pretty close to exampled in Ruth chapter 4, uh, where Boaz married in actually a, a, another closer relative, didn't want to do it for some reason that was going to, I don't know, goof up his inheritance or his property rights or something, and so he didn't do that. But this uh, fellow, Onan, didn't want to do his duty either for some reason, and he dishonored his brother's memory in the activity there that's uh, described in the chapter. He mistreated the widow. Uh, I mean, if you, if you kind of make, I don't know what you want to say, the impression that you're going to fulfill that duty and marry uh, the widow, then you need to do it and not just mess around. And so he also disobeyed his father because his father instructed him to carry out that cultural duty. And so what happened to Onan? Well, God got rid of him too. Now, Judah, uh, it, he says to Tamar, the widow, you know, look, uh, wait for my son Sheila to grow up a little older. He's, got, he's not a you know, fully grown man yet. We've got to wait for him. She's going to be older by that time. But in reality, it appears that he never had any intention to marry off Shelah to Tamar because he figured if Shelah was anything like Ur and Onan, he was next, meaning going to die too. And because he says that down in, uh, in verse 11 at the end of the verse, for he said, this is in you know, kind of his thinking, lest also he also die like his brothers. And so Tamar went away. Well, he, you know, it seems like he was promising one thing and he was doing another thing. Okay, he was being uh, disingenuous. Judah was. So uh, Tamar then schemed to get Judah to give her offspring instead of her prior husbands to give her a child. In other words, and that was basically what the chapter talks about: prostitution and incest terribly sinful, both of them. But as a result of that union, she bore twins, Perez and Zerah. Perez ended up in the Messianic line, if you remember. Look, uh, where do I have that? Um, Ruth 4 mentions that. I'll go to Matthew chapter 1. You could also look in Luke chapter 3. It's there. But in Matthew chapter 1, we see the name of this fellow in chapter 1 and verse number 3. It says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron and Hezron Ram. And then it goes on down and we get down to Joseph and Mary and the Christ. So the text uh, tells us that Perez comes about as a result of this. The parents' sinful behavior did not prevent the Lord from having this man in the Messianic genealogy. Judah, too, for that matter. And after all, I mean, God only has sinners to work with, right? So he doesn't, have, he doesn't pick out you know, the perfect ones once in a while from the human lineage and use them only. Uh, you see Rahab, 
You see uh, Perez here. You see David, the king, Abraham, and all of his imperfections. But you know what it's like with the, with the Lord? It's like when he went to the city of Nain, and he saw there coming out of the city a coffin of a, of a, of a woman, her only son, and he touched it. No uncleanness could transmit itself to him, it seems. In fact, he transmitted life to the man that was in that coffin and raised him up from the dead. So the sinfulness of humanity does not degrade or take away from the perfection of Christ. Even in his genealogy, you'd say, well, he has a, he has a checkered background. Well, yes, he does, because he comes from the human race. And all of us are a bit checkered more or less, aren't we? So he came from that line and out of it brought salvation. I, I, uh, you know, we don't see Jesus specifically mentioned here, but if you're paying attention to the book, to the chapter in the book and its context, you're going to be thinking, how does this move us forward in God's program? So why is the chapter then in the Bible? Well, it does alert us to the origin of Perez, and we see him in the genealogies that I mentioned already. Uh, The events also happened right smack dab in the middle of the chapter 37 and 39 time frame. While poor Joseph is off there being a slave and in prison, we'll look at in a moment, this sort of stuff is happening back in the promised land. Now, Judah also seemed to be a pretty decent fellow in the opening chapters of uh, his life, but after the sale of Joseph, which he was involved in, and this immorality, it's evident that Judah is really no better than his brothers. Remember, Reuben and, and Simeon and Levi all had their serious problems that led to rebuke by their father, and here Judah also has gotten himself into uh, a, bitty, a really bad setup, really bad situation. So he's just like all those other checkered people that we talk about, just talked about just a moment ago. It seems that the men of the family were content to blend into the society even though they understood better than that. Now, why do I say that? Let me try to explain. Do you remember back to the Hamor Shechem Dinah incident back in what was it, chapter 34? And there... When they, when they found out their sister was abused like that, and they, they kind of put out this plan to say, well, if you all are circumcised like we are, then we can dwell together and do business and intermarry and all that sort of stuff. They knew of God's desire for the circumcision rite or ritual to be a marker for them that they were people of the God of Abraham. They were distinct from everyone around them. They followed their father Abraham and his religion, his God, his faith. <clears throat> of course, in the incident where they kind of proposed circumcision to Hamor and his people, they were not really being faithful about that principle. They were using it as a bit of trickery uh, to get the people into a painful situation so they could take advantage of them. So they were, they were using the, the matter of separation between the people of God and and other peoples around them as an excuse, not in a holy way, but in a conniving way. They say, oh, if we just get this external religious sign, then we'll all be happy, one big happy family. So there was a good principle, 
but a bad use of the principle. The point is that the principle was clearly known. They knew that God wanted them to be separate. They knew that Abraham didn't want his son to have a a pagan wife. They knew that Isaac didn't want his son to have a pagan wife. They knew that uh, Ishmael had not chosen wisely, that Esau had not married well. By the way, that decision of marriage, one of those huge decisions that we make that shows where our heads really are at. You know, that's when we really declare who we are, among other things, what kind of person you decide to choose as a spouse. Are you just going to follow your own lust, follow your own desires, or are you going to say, look, I'm going to follow what God wants me to do. What God, I'm going to submit to God and not to myself. So godliness was, an inc- was incumbent upon them, but they were okay with violating that. And we saw that with, we see that if we read the whole chapter, which you can do offline here, uh, that Judah, he didn't care about that separation. You know, he, he didn't keep his word with Shelah. He uh, went after Tamar. Well, of course, he didn't know who it was at first, but then, oh, it's just such a mess. So they're living in this society which is shot through with paganism and prostitution and all of that, and God saw to it that the, the baby nation of Israel was removed from that environment. You know how he did it? With a famine and with the rescue of Joseph. And then they kept them together, God kept them together, and they suffered the persecution that we know from the book of Exodus. And what did that do? Well, what, that, what, what happened in the book of Exodus in the nation of Egypt was that the people began, Joseph, he passed away, and the king, the, or kings that knew him passed away, and a new king arose and didn't know him, and then they began to be afraid, and as Exodus tells us, of the growing population of Israel. And then there was a bit of a prejudiced or racist kind of ethnocentric behavior that the Egyptians exercised toward the Jews. They had them cloistered in a certain area where they, they initially moved to Goshen, you know, and uh, they were sheep herders, which was you know, repugnant to the Egyptians, and, and they were the Hebrew people, and they spoke a different language, and they're different, and the Egyptians were, you know, self kind of superior, and thought they were refined probably, and these people were just worthy to be slaves. They did enslave them, so what happened was it forged a national identity for the people of Israel. God forced them to be separated from the idolatry that was around them initially in the land of Canaan, but they picked up some more in Egypt, of course, on the side. They brought some of their idols out with them and followed them in the wilderness, Moloch and Remphan and those, and offered sacrifice. And then, of course, the golden calf. So they couldn't quite get rid of all the idolatry, but God brought them out of this situation using famine and persecution. That was not pleasant but it was far better than going down into idolatry. What would have been better yet is if the sons of Jacob would have walked with God thoroughly and not to have to have God chasten them for their disobedience. Now, of course, listen, God does choose to chasten His people even if they're obedient to Him in general, to prune them and help them bear even more fruit and to strengthen their faith. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But as I've often said, let's not give God more reasons to chasten us than what he already has. Just let's live godly in Christ Jesus 
and take the persecution and the chastening that he gives us with that, but not go down some stupid path, living dumb in dumb ways, and then having, have him whack us back into line again. That happens. God does that. And so the point of this is to you know, point out here some reasons why God put chapter 38 in the Bible and also to show the contrast with Joseph. Here you have a godly man and an evil man, Judah and Joseph. Joseph is down in Egypt suffering, slaving away, being a good steward, gets thrown in jail unjustly, and here's Judah running around like a fool. What a contrast that is. God is trying to get us to pay attention like, live like Joseph. Live like Joseph lived. You know, he, he may have seemed arrogant to his brothers. You know, your sheaves are going to fall down and worship my... Well, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not boasting if it's true, I guess. Is that what they say? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a, a real uh, prophecy, a real dream that was going to happen. And, and in fact, it did happen. The, I guess the irony would, uh, would hopefully not be lost on the brothers after they found out that Joseph was still alive and that they were uh, under his servitude, as it were, as he uh, ruled over them later on. We'll get to that later in, in uh, Genesis. First, though, we come to chapter 39 in Genesis, and we see that Joseph was unjustly imprisoned, and then he became an interpreter of dreams, and that's what ended up elevating him out of the prison and, and before uh, Pharaoh's sight. God's plan moved forward despite injustice, and also because of it. Now, that's hard to take for me. I wonder if it's hard to take for you. God uses injustice. He used injustice, as we said last time, uh, with Pilate uh, condemning the Lord Jesus, even though Pilate knew he was innocent, he hadn't done anything wrong. Very great injustice, grave injustice, I would call it. But God used that to send Jesus to the cross so that he would die for our sins. He didn't deserve to die there, but he did, by God's special arrangement, have that experience, and God used that to pour out his wrath upon the Son of God so that he wouldn't pour it out upon us, his creation, if we would trust and and believe in Jesus Christ. So... Here's, here's Joseph suffering kind of, as, as it were, as a foreshadowing or a type of Jesus. He's an he's a innocent, relatively, of course, he's not perfect. He's not a sinless person. No, none are except Jesus. But a relatively innocent person, doing the best that he can, living for God, trying to serve him. God is with him, and he suffers uh, grave injustice in his life. So it says in 39, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. We read that before. He's in the service of Potiphar. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and served him. Then he, that's Potiphar, made him Joseph, overseer of his house, and all that he had, and he put All that he had, rather, he put under his authority. So it was from the time that he had made him overseer of his house and all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. 
Thus he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. So that almost up to the end of verse 6. I stopped there just for a moment for a reason. So Joseph was raised to a position of prominence in Potiphar's house because of his administrative and leadership abilities, his hard work, which the Lord had induced and given to him. And notice, notice, notice that it was the Lord's presence with Joseph that made him successful. You will never be truly successful unless the Lord is with you. Okay? Book it. It's just the way that it is. The measure of success is not dollars. It's not properties. It's not fame. It's measured with eternal value. Real success is eternal, not temporal. And many times in this portion of Scripture, it indicates God was with him, God blessed him. Why was that the case? Well, because Joseph was one of the heirs of what covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. God said to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, I will be with you. I will bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I'll bless those who bless you. And Joseph was experiencing that because he was following God. He was enjoying some of the blessings of that at this time. And, uh, of course, also some of the persecutions of being part of the people of God. Potiphar partook of God's blessing on account of Joseph. Remember what we talked about collateral blessings several times now? Because you're a, a man or a woman of God, those people around you may be experiencing blessing simply because God is blessing you. He's giving you wisdom so you don't do stupid things like we talked about before. He's giving you an active conscience that causes you to back away from sin and not want to do it and to hate it and all of that. And that leads to good consequences. And those good consequences bleed over into your connections with other people, collateral blessing. So he assigned stewardship for all of his goods to Joseph. He did not have to check up on anything. He didn't have to audit anything because Joseph's work was honest. He was a hardworking man. He was completely trusted as the steward of Potiphar. But Joseph had one liability. It says at the end of verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. That can be a curse, can it? Potiphar's wife repeatedly tried to lure him into an illicit relationship, but he would not buckle to her seductions. He knew that to do so was not only sin against his master, who trusted him implicitly, a sin against his own body, Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 and 20, as sin against the woman, and most importantly, a sin against God. Against thee and thee only have I sinned, David says in Psalm 51, by way of kind of, you could say, hyperbolic expression. Of course, he sinned against Uriah the Hittite and, his, and Bathsheba and his wives, his existing wife and all that, and of course, against God. He had sinned, and all of our sin is ultimately against God. God is the quote-unquote victim of every sin. So Joseph continued about his work. He ignored Potiphar's wife the best he could, but she cornered him one day and took his outer garment. When he fled from her to avoid sin, then she turned on him and became a liar and to cover up her lust and unfaithfulness to her husband. So she pinned blame on Joseph, of course, this Hebrew 
But notice what she said. This Hebrew slave, which you brought into our house, Mr. Potiphar, your fault. Her internal prejudice came out as well. You know, the Hebrew was fine as long as she could just look at him and enjoy him. But when she had to cover up her sin, then her prejudice came out. And that was that. So what does this teach us? Well, clearly, uh, when you know, we're to avoid situations where we're in private spaces alone with someone of the opposite sex, not our spouse. It's dangerous. Don't do it. Not only can it lead us into sin, which often happens, but in this case, it didn't lead Joseph into sin. What did it lead to? A false accusation, which ended up in a disastrous mess. Okay? It can be used against us as it was with Joseph if we get into that kind of situation. So an open door policy is appropriate or at least a window in the door so others can see what's going on in the office there or the room. The Apostle Paul authoritatively teaches us flee sexual immorality. That's 1 Corinthians 6.18. Every sin that a man does outside his body except this sin, which is he does against his own body, he says. Then he says in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee Youthful lusts. Two times the Bible says flee. What does flee mean? Split, Split. run away, ski-daddle, on the double, move. I mean, that means move your physicality, your physical body somewhere else. Get out. And then he says in 1 Timothy 6.11, to flee harmful, destructive lusts, and to flee the love of money. So I just picked out those verses because they use the word flee, and that's what Joseph did, flee. That's what he tells us to do, run away from that stuff. So upon hearing his wife's story, Potiphar becomes angry with Joseph and has him thrown into prison. Now, did he really believe Joseph Uh, did he really believe his wife more than Joseph? He must have known that his wife was not the most faithful person. But who knows? Couldn't believe it maybe, I don't know. The prison was evidently a bit of a a white-collar type of prison because uh, in the next chapter, high-level officials of Pharaoh go into that prison as well. So... Whatever the case was, it was unpleasant nonetheless. But the Lord was still with Joseph. Do you see that? Uh, Verse number 21, the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his, Joseph's doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything because, or that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So wherever he was, whether it was in the prison or in the captain of the guard's house, he rose to the top of that fish tank, and he was the the steward uh, over top of it. I couldn't help but think, boy, that, you know, Joseph's good performance lets guys like uh, Potiphar and uh, and the keeper of the prison kind of be lazy. They they don't have to do much because he takes care of everything. Well, uh, very well, but... Chapter 40, he's in prison, and the whole chapter is about these two guys that have this, these dreams. Um, the butler, or if you rather, in some translations, the cup bearer, like Nehemiah, and the baker, 
were thrown into jail, perhaps on suspicion of treason, treason or some other charge. And so the men were there. They were put under Joseph's care. It tells us in uh, verse number uh, 4, the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them in verse 4 of chapter 40, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. And then they had a dream, each of them in one night. And their dreams each had a meaning to them, but they didn't know what the meaning was. And so Joseph came in, saw that they were sad. He, he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody there, why do you look so sad today? And they said, we've each had a dream and there's no interpreter. So Joseph said, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me, please. So Joseph has been in these um, months and years, both in Potiphar's house and in prison, cultivating a close relationship with God. It's obvious that he's been doing that. And so he gets the inside scoop on these dreams. Yeah, exactly right about Daniel. Um, So he told the butler, the cupbearer, that within three days he would be out of prison and back to his place of prominence before Pharaoh. Joseph simply asked him, hey, listen, when you go there, put a good word in for me because I'm over here in this prison. I haven't done anything wrong. And maybe the Pharaoh can um, pardon me, and I can get out of this place. Joseph was actually acting like a prophet in this instance by hearing the dream and recognizing it was a revelation from God and then giving the meaning behind the metaphor in the dream, the pictures that were seen by the man in the dream. This is just like Daniel, 1,300 years roughly later. By the way, these events were in the 1800s B.C., so a long time ago. Uh, under probably Pharaoh uh, Senusret II, but it doesn't matter really for our purposes which one, which Pharaoh it was. Um, both Daniel and Joseph give credit to God for interpreting dreams. If you look in Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, I think it is, the scripture tells us there that Daniel credited God with allowing him to interpret the dreams. And you know Daniel had several of these dreams. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar had one, in chapter 2, and Daniel interpreted that dream. Now, the baker likewise had a dream, but it was about baskets on his head out of which the birds ate. And the interpretation that Joseph was given by God was a more sad interpretation for the baker, and that is that he would be killed within three days and uh, he would be fodder for the scavenging birds of the area. Perhaps he was culpable for the treasonous plot or some other crime that Pharaoh had heard about. Uh, But we can't know that for sure. Why? Because justice wasn't really the end and be-all that it should be in these kinds of regimes. There would be a lot of capricious rule and and quote-unquote justice served. As I thought about this, I knew that you maybe, some of you would have the question, what about dreams? It's interesting that the New Testament does not speak much about dreams or interpretations of dreams. Uh, give a few examples. Paul experienced a dream in Acts 16. You remember which one that was? A man of Macedonia appears to him in a night vision and says, come over and help us. He's just nearby to, to Macedonia, just across the sea, a little voyage. So what interpretation was needed with that dream? Didn't take very much, you know, academic uh, 
understanding to be able to figure out, oh, we should go over to Macedonia. That's what God is telling us to do. Um, No one needed to interpret it for him. Some dreams occurred in the birth narrative of Jesus. Remember that? The angel appears, talks to Joseph. Of course, vision of the angel to Mary. uh, Told the parents to go down to Egypt. Told them to come back to Egypt. Told them to go to Nazareth to get out of the area where Archelaus was. Uh, But those were just direct revelatory information from God. There wasn't a metaphor or a need for interpretation. It wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar's big statue, you know, and what the different parts of it meant and that sort of thing. So the meaning was obvious for those. There's no gift of spiritual dream interpretation either uh, suggested in the New Testament. Now somebody might say, well, that's subsumed under the gift of knowledge or prophecy, but I couldn't think of an example in the New Testament nor a place when there's the list of gifts where it talks about interpretation of dreams. We just don't see that. Uh, there's interpretation of tongues. There are languages. There's prophecy and so on. But there are not the, there's not a gift of um, interpretation of dreams, even if there was, or shall I say, even if there were a gift of interpretation of dreams, my understanding is it would fall into the same category as tongues, prophecies, and knowledge, which 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says will pass away. They will pass away when that which is perfect has come, which I've made the case refers to the completed revelation of God's word. Okay, so uh, no issues with us trying to hunt around for an interpretation of a dream or thinking that dreams were some big thing. Um, that are some big thing that we have to worry about. God is not pleased today to give dreams or use dreams to reveal things, nor uh, that's, that there will be specially gifted people to interpret them because we have the Word of God. We have God's Word. It's complete and all that's necessary for a life of godliness in this age. Anytime I hear somebody saying, God gave me a dream, and I get this new revelation, I say, Wait, okay, just turn it off. It's done. I don't. I can't. I can't stand to hear that because you know the next thing they're going to say is something that probably contradicts God's Word. If it didn't contradict God's Word, there wouldn't be any need for the dream in the first place. So I have you know, very uh, dim view here of what these folks who talk about these dreams. Now, what about your dreams then? If your dreams raise items that you think you need to do, that are in concert with Scripture, this simply means that your brain was thinking about those things and perhaps your conscience is talking to you as you think. What you need to do might be obvious, but if you're left confused, your pastor would be happy to discuss with you based on Scripture, not on your dream, but on Scripture, if what you're thinking lines up with the Bible. What is a dream anyway? A dream is just vivid thinking. That usually happens in the night. Sometimes if you daydream, it happens during the day. But uh, that's all it is. It's just thinking. So why is it that when we fall asleep and we have this dream that we kind of see vividly that we think all of a sudden, oh, God gave that. But when you're awake at 10 a.m. on Monday morning and you're thinking grumpy thoughts, God didn't give you those ones, those thoughts, right? No, God doesn't interact in that direct fashion with us in this age. He's not pleased to do that. In fact, in Deuteronomy 13, the scriptures talk about dreamers and so-called prophets 
which are often associated with false religion and idolatry, not true godliness. Well, the sad note of the story at the uh, end of chapter 40 is verse 23, yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Um, You know, when people forget you, there's one who doesn't ever forget. God is with you. So don't feel, you know, the Apostle Paul, he's in prison, 2 Timothy 4. Everybody's left him, but God stood with me, he says. So be sure to know that, even if it seems that all have abandoned you. And, and often that's not the case if you have Christian friends. They're just, they're just weak and forgetful like you are. And uh, don't always remember to pray for you or don't pick up the phone and when they think of it and, they th- and it gets to 10 o'clock at night and they're like, oh, I was going to call so-and-so today, but I can't call now because it's too late. And then the same thing happens for the next 300 days. <laughs> you know? No, when you, when you think about those, by the way, do it now while you have the opportunity to. Well, anyway, God's blessing was evidence of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The injustices that befell Joseph were not evidence that God left him. They were evidence that God was still working with him. Rather, preparing further steps of the fulfillment of that covenant, not abandoning the covenant. So when we think of the terrible moral conditions in the world, remember, these are not accidental God is working through and with them to bring about his intended culmination of world events. You get that? He's, he's, he's using them. He's promised that these things will occur. And he's using them to bring about the glorious coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for, again, the uh, broccoli and carrots here today. Some things we have to go over some things that may not be the most tasteful, but they are necessary. And Lord, I pray that you help us to learn from the the lessons that are here and uh, remind us, Lord, always to be godly and not to be swallowed up by the culture around us, conformed to the image of the world. No, conformed to the image of Christ. Drawn near to God, not drawn near to wickedness and evil. We thank you for reminding us of this necessary necessary lesson today. In Jesus' name, amen.